Thank you, Paul, and thank you all of you for being here once again. It's good to be back. You should have a handout tonight as well as the PowerPoint. As you'll see, they will overlap in some cases, but I decided it would be kinder, granted some of the subject matter, that you would have the chance to keep an eye on some of the things so that they won't just disappear off the screen, but they'll still be on your desk as well. I have argued so far that both the modern question of natural theology and the contemporary discussion of Jesus have been shaped by the revived Epicureanism of the turbulent so-called secular age. Moreover, as we saw last time, the Epicurean split of heaven and earth was matched by the Enlightenment split between past and present, generating further confusions around history. And all this has meant that when people now discuss theology, not least natural theology, Jesus and his kingdom message are regularly marginalized. And this has affected those puzzling words, eschatology and apocalyptic. I've often told the story, some of you may have heard me tell it before, but when my book, Jesus and the Victory of God, came out, my father, bless him, read everything I wrote. He was not an academic, he'd been a businessman, but he was determined not as it were to be beaten by his son writing all this funny stuff and he started to read Jesus and the Victory of God and he phoned me up and said I'm through the first couple of hundred pages I keep on looking up eschatology in the dictionary and I keep on forgetting what it says and I said that's probably because your dictionary says death judgment heaven and hell and he said yeah I think it does say something like that I said well please turn to page 242 or whatever it was where I show you how the word is being used in the discourse that I'm taking part in. Ah, so we move forward. <clears throat> I want tonight to propose some clarifications and then to address the question arising from the second lecture, namely, if Schweitzer and Bultmann were wrong about the end of the world Jesus, what about the texts in the New Testament that seem to point that way? The texts themselves, in fact, will show that if we assume the Enlightenment's radical splits of cosmology and history, we will get eschatology and apocalyptic wrong. Bultmann's Giffords were, I think, caught in this trap. So having discussed history last time, I'm now looking at eschatology so as then to move forwards to new creation and its implications for natural theology. So eschatology. On eschatology, I am following and developing George Caird's analysis in his still important book, the language and imagery of the Bible. There is first eschatology in the sense of the traditional last things that I just mentioned, death, judgment, heaven and hell. The word with this meaning was first used in Germany in the early 1800s and was imported into English later that century. Second, there is the eschatology of, as I called it last night, predictive historicism. And by 1900, the word was being used to indicate the goal towards which it was assumed history was progressing, whether the view of Hegel or the view of Teilhard de Chardin or a more biblical retrieval of something called salvation history, though that phrase itself gets multiply caught up with all the confusions. This meaning of eschatology was then eclipsed by the third meaning, the consistent eschatology or consequenza eschatology of Albert Schweitzer, who used the word in the sense it still bears for many, namely the imminent end of the world. There are some debates in footnotes here and there as to whether Schweitzer really believed that. I've checked out this with various contemporary Schweitzer scholars who say, yeah, actually he really did. He didn't say it necessarily in so many words in his original books, but it comes through at various places. Then fourth, there is C.H. Dodd's response to Schweitzer. And here, C.H. Dodd thought that eschatology meant that Jesus was announcing that the kingdom was already present, realized eschatology. Dodd eliminated some future sayings and flattened others into present meanings in the Gospels. But later, under the influence of Jeremias, this is well known, Dodd modified his stance to eschatology in the process of being realized. That still left wide open what the kingdom might actually be. Bultmann then introduced the fifth meaning, the existentialist understanding, expounded in his Giffords and elsewhere. For him, eschatology meant something like what English speakers mean by spirituality. Vertical experience taking the place of horizontal expectation. 
And as with Dodd, this turned the apparently future into the supposedly present. Now, for Dodd, this boiled down to a new ethic. The Lutheran Bultmann, always suspicious of works, was never going to go that route. He substituted an experience, which turned out to be not too different from Gnosticism. George Caird finally describes in his treatment two further meanings of which, we can, uh, of which we can be clear historically and on which I suggest research should concentrate. There is, and this is my sixth meaning, the Jewish view of the two ages, ha'olam hazeh, ha'olam hava, the present age and the age to come. And this two-age theory is not, as is often imagined, characteristic of something called apocalyptic as different from other Jewish beliefs. It was widespread. It continues into the later rabbis, long after they have abandoned the dangerous kingdom dreams that died with Bar Kokhva. The two-age scheme summarizes the historical and political hope for the real return from exile, the new exodus, and so on. And this two-age scheme is not, as some suppose, dualistic, with a God-forsaken present over against a God-filled future, though some Jews at some times may have moved in that direction. Rather, the present world is understood in this two-age scheme as the creation of the one God and under his providential control, with various theories advanced as to why God keeps delaying the age to come in which everything's going to be put right. Where does that sit in relation to the other meanings that I've just very briefly laid out? The first one is hardly in sight. Most Jews believed in some kind of afterlife theory, but not in those terms. Nor does the Jewish two ages scheme yield a predictive historicism, let alone a smooth development. People are often worried about, did they believe in a smooth salvation historical development with the age to come being simply a polished prolongation of the present age? No. Nor does this Jewish two age view support the end of the world idea. And nor does it allow for a fully realized eschatology in either the Jewish texts or the gospels even when Jesus is doing exorcisms. Most of the signs of the age to come, the overthrow of wickedness, universal justice and peace, were not present. Likewise, this Jewish two-age view would reject the existential interpretation. An existential sense of the divine presence might be a necessary condition for recognizing the arrival of the age to come, but it could never be a sufficient condition. It could never be the whole thing. As Jewish critics have always insisted, the coming age was supposed to be firmly this worldly, a new political and social order. There is finally a seventh meaning, the early Christian version of this Jewish hope. This is explicit in the Gospels and in Paul, and it claims that the age to come has already been inaugurated. It's the word that's now almost done to death, but I'm... I'm very happy to have a better one if somebody can suggest one, but at the moment it's been inaugurated through the death of Jesus and his resurrection and the gift of the Spirit. Jesus has won the victory over the dark powers. He has dealt with sin and launched the new creation. You get anticipations of this view already in Qumran and some other pre-Christian Jewish texts which believed that something had happened already which would anticipate a final day. And this view contains within it in early Christianity, the promise that all things will be put right at the last, as in Romans or 1 Corinthians or Revelation. Those texts certainly envisage what we moderns think of as social or political effects. The promises of Psalm 72 are not merely metaphors for spirituality or distant signposts to a non-spatio-temporal heaven. In the New Testament's eschatology, they are real pointers to actual justice and mercy. So for eschatology, you need to keep those seven senses there. And when you hear the word, when you find yourself speaking the word, ask yourself which of them you're plugging into. Hopefully go for the last two. <clears throat> so to apocalyptic, I've discussed apocalyptic extensively. I've, you've got a reference there on your sheet for a recent treatment, but I've written about it quite a lot. The German scholar Jörg Frey has recently accused me of neutralizing apocalyptic, a charge I rebut. 
For Fry and other continentals, the word apocalyptic still means what Schweitzer and Bultmann were talking about. And anyone who denies that end of the world meaning is seen as copping out. More importantly though, in America and some parts of the UK, but nowhere much else, apocalyptic is now used in a quite different specialized sense associated with J. Louis Martin and his followers, denoting divine invasion vertically from above and allowing no room for Heilsgeschichte, for earlier stories of the world in general or Israel in particular. Hegel is clearly still a bogeyman there. And here, Fry and I totally agree that that sense of apocalyptic is not found in the first century. It's a 20th century polemical invention retrieving some aspects of early Bart while flying under the false colors of a supposedly technical term at home in the first century. And theologians who try to retrieve Martin's meaning, hoping for biblical validation for such a scheme, are always in danger of seeing only the reflection of a pale Bartian face at the bottom of a muddled exegetical well. So let me clarify the meanings. I list first, Lou Martin. Apocalyptic for him means divine disclosure or victory with no visible antecedent. History has failed, we need a new word. Galatians 1.4 speaks of being rescued from the present evil age. <clears throat> there you are, evil age goes we are rescued from it. <clears throat> Adherents of this sometimes cite Walter Benjamin without irony. Martin's reading of Galatians is, however, fatally flawed, as I and many others have argued. It doesn't work as first century exegesis, and actually Bart himself seems to have changed his mind by the time you get to the later church dogmatics. <clears throat> Second, there is the meaning of apocalyptic we associate with Weiss and Schweitzer, the actual and imminent end of the world. When the text says that the stars will fall from heaven, it means that the stars will fall from heaven. An astronomer looking up could have seen it happen. Third, some have used the word apocalyptic in connection particularly with the parousia, the second coming of Jesus. Kazeman was referring to this when he said that apocalyptic was the mother of Christian theology in that for him, the early Christians lived on that imminent hope and the next generation reframed things in disappointment. But it was apocalyptic, the parousia of Jesus, which was driving it. Fourth, the position which Kazeman was resisting we have Bultzmann's reading of apocalyptic, the demythologized reading, in which Jesus borrowed the language of apocalyptic, in the second sense, in order to refer to a timeless and non-political existential challenge facing everyone every day. Instead of this, fifth, Instead of this interior struggle, Kazeman, him again, saw a cosmic battle. I mean, Kazeman occurs several points here because I think he used the word in overlapping senses. I have a letter from him in which he said, apocalyptic is by mir states nahavatun. Apocalyptic is for me simply uh, imminent expectation. But when we tease that out, we get these different senses and different scholars have picked up the different senses and made them thematic for their work. So, um, fifth, Kazeman saw a cosmic battle. And this produces the meaning that apocalyptic language is denoting the struggle between God and non-human powers. Kazeman, after the war, was absolutely determined that's how you had to see things. And here, interestingly, Martin, who was a pupil of Kazeman's, diverges radically from Kazeman because for Kazeman, the final victory would only be at the parousia. But for Martin, who made the idea of cosmic powers central as well, the battle had already been won on the cross. That's a major divergence. People sometimes now, in the light of this sense, refer to the powers in question as apocalyptic powers, which I think builds one confusion upon another. The sixth position is that of George Caird again, and of many today like Chris Rowland and other contemporary specialists in Jewish apocalyptic. Uh, somebody like Lawrence Stuckenbrook comes to mind as a contemporary specialist. <clears throat> Here the word apocalyptic is best used to describe a genre, or at least a literary form and use where the writers intend to denote what we call this worldly realities and to connote theological meaning. 
And you see this in Jewish writing from Daniel to 4 Ezra and in early Christian writing, including Revelation and Paul and the Gospels. The so-called apocalyptic discourse in Mark is ostensibly about the fall of the temple because since the temple, seen as the microcosmos, in a sense I'll explain next time, the temple symbolized and effected the joining of heaven and earth, the temple's destruction would demand to be described as Jeremiah had described it in terms of cosmic collapse. I am thus neither modernizing, nor taming, nor neutralizing apocalyptic. I am trying to read it in its historical context. Indeed, reading apocalyptic without its political connotations is the real neutralization. So the historical hope. What matters is historical exegesis. In the light of the way I was playing with the word historical last night, you may wonder what I mean by that. Historical exegesis in the sense of the constant effort to understand texts in their contexts and to display the relevant thoughts and motivations. The Jewish and early Christian writings towards which Weissenschweitzer had gestured had to do with this worldly realities interpreting those realities, past, present, and future, within the integrated cosmology of which the Jerusalem temple was the effective symbol. These writers were not dualists. They were not Epicureans or Deists. They were certainly not Platonists. The Jews and early Christians believed in the cosmology reflected in the temple and the Sabbath, that heaven and earth, future and present and past, were designed to go together, to overlap and interlock. We'll explore this further next time. And in particular, we need to note, there never was a first century school called the apocalyptic movement. That's a modern invention. Josephus never mentions such a thing. He, he lists the different parties, and he never, said, never goes on and says, and then there were those people, apocalyptists or whatever. All kinds of people in the first century used apocalyptic form and language to express their particular variety of hope. Jesus himself did so, not only in Mark 13, but, for instance, in the parables. Now, I agree, then, with those who call Jesus an eschatological prophet or even an apocalyptic prophet. But what might that mean? Which of the senses of eschatology and apocalyptic are you pegging that to? People toss that phrase, phrases like that around as though we were all signed up to one meaning. Confusion. Jesus' proclamation was indeed about something that was happening and something that would happen as a result of which the world would be a different place. If that's what you mean by eschatology, fine. And this hope was often expressed in scriptural language, sometimes echoing Daniel. If that's what we mean by apocalyptic, that too is correct. Because Jesus was not simply a great moral or social teacher. He wasn't offering either a new spirituality or a new way to get to heaven. He was talking about something that was happening and would happen once and for all on earth and in as in heaven. He was using language that would invest that something which its theological significance. But what was that something? Apocalyptic literature, to repeat uses the language of cosmic catastrophe to refer to actual political events. When Isaiah spoke of sun and moon being darkened, he was referring to the fall of Babylon and giving that event its cosmic significance. My friend and former colleague John Barton in Oxford used to say in lectures that when we read a text saying the sun and the moon will be darkened and the stars will be falling from heaven, we should know as a matter of literary genre that the next line will not be the rest of the country will have scattered showers and sunny intervals. <laughs> when Jeremiah referred to the fall of Jerusalem, he warned that the world was heading back to chaos. First century Jews knew this. Josephus knows that Daniel is politically subversive. Fourth Ezra reinterprets Daniel with the messianic lion attacking the Roman eagle. Nobody today and nobody then thought that Daniel's four sea monsters in chapter 7 were the th sort of things that David Attenborough might display on Blue Planet. 
So why assume that the Son of Man coming on the clouds would refer simply to a human being flying around in midair? Likewise, nobody reading 4th Ezra 12 imagined an actual lion attacking an actual, if unconventionally feathered, eagle. The post-Enlightenment world, having never really engaged with ancient Jewish thought, inevitably understood divine action in the world within the prevailing Epicurean worldview, and so took such language to denote intervention from outside, resulting in the present world coming to an end. Since the Enlightenment also understood time to be broken and was offering its own version of inaugurated eschatology, in which Jesus was at best an early teacher of an acceptable religion, it was deaf to first century Jewish notions of both space and time. And in particular, it was deaf to the main themes of Jewish hope for the new age to arrive with Yahweh himself returning in visible glory and Israel at last being rescued from ongoing exile. And this brings us, not before time, to the actual texts at the heart of the debates. <clears throat> so hope reimagined Jesus and his first followers. Those who've understood Jesus and his first followers to be speaking of the imminent end of the world regularly turn to Mark 9.1 and its parallels. Some people standing here won't experience death before they see God's kingdom come in power. And closely allied with this, there are many sayings, but I'm just highlighting the obvious ones, is the saying about the Son of Man coming on the clouds in Mark 13.26 and the remark about this generation not passing away in verse 30. And then Jesus' answer to Caiaphas, where Mark reads, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. Many other passages, as you know, link to these. And they leave us with two main questions. First, do any early Christian texts speak of an actual cosmic catastrophe? And second, how did the first century Christians themselves understand the sayings which did have a specific time limit, like those ones from Mark 9 and Mark 13? Obvious place to start. Romans 8 does indeed predict a cosmic convulsion resulting in the transformation of the present creation. Paul uses Exodus language. What God did for Israel... And what God did for Jesus at Easter, God will finally do for the whole creation. And Paul links this to the final resurrection, envisaging an actual transformative event, not simply an existential experience. But Romans 8 does not describe a cosmic disaster. The present creation will not be destroyed. It will be set free from thorough decay. It will be more truly itself when, in the end, God will be all in all. That's borrowed from 1 Corinthians 15, but it's the same point. And this is guaranteed for Paul by two things, the death and resurrection of the Messiah and the power of the Spirit. Something has happened in the past, Jesus' death and resurrection and the gift of the Spirit, as a result of which something else will happen in the future. There is all the difference between a cosmic catastrophe abolishing the present world and establishing a new heavenly ethereal reality instead, and the liberation of creation from decay. And this applies as well to the new heavens and new earth in Revelation 21. What is new is that there is no more decay or death. There's been a radical transformation. In any case, Paul in Romans 8 says nothing there or elsewhere about the predicted cosmic transformation coming to pass within a generation. Like the thief in the night, for him it could come at any time. This point is obvious in 2 Thessalonians 2, and here Paul doesn't exactly say what the day of the Lord does mean, but we see clearly what it doesn't mean. He says, don't be blown off course in your thinking or be unsettled, either through spiritual influence or through a word or through a letter supposedly from us telling you that the day of the Lord has arrived. I've said it a hundred times, if the day of the Lord meant the collapse of the space-time universe, you don't expect to be informed of this by a letter. Paul is describing transformative events within 
the ongoing space-time world, not the destruction of that world and its replacement with a purely spiritual existence or supernatural. So what did the earliest Christians believe about Jesus' promise of an imminent kingdom? Suppose we showed Paul Mark 9.1 and its parallels, or Mark 13.30 saying this generation won't pass away, what would Paul say? And how might the writers of the Gospels themselves explain what they thought sayings like that meant? One standard answer is that the early Christians developed a now and not yet approach. Something had happened to bring in the expected kingdom. Something was yet to happen through which that already inaugurated kingdom would then reach its ultimate goal. Some scholars have continued to attack this as a modern apologetic invention, or perhaps as a late first century view, again, an apologetic invention after the first generation had passed. So the case must be made again. We start with the early traditions outside the Gospels. Paul, I suggest, never changed his mind about the coming end, only about whether he would live to see it. For his settled position of an inaugurated kingdom eschatology, think of Romans 1, 3, and 4. I was working on this a year or so ago, and I was scratching my head and wondering which texts would really make the sort of points that needed to be made. And it dawned on me that in most of the discussions, Romans 1, 3, and 4 just never gets referred to. But that two-verse passage and the next verses which immediately follow are, by most people's accounts, Paul's summary of something that most early Christians would have said, yes, that's the gospel. This is about Jesus being descended from the seed of David and designated son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. This is echoing Psalm 2 and saying that Jesus has been marked out as son of God in power by the resurrection. And this power is what then enables Paul to summon the nations to allegiance, Romans 1.5. This exactly echoes Mark 9.1. The kingdom has already come with power when Jesus arose and sent out his heralds to the nations. There remains, of course, throughout Romans, a future dimension. And past and future then frame present obligation to implement the already through apostolic work and through church holiness and unity, and thereby to anticipate the eventual future. Now, this notion of God's already launched kingdom is explicit in Romans 5, 12 to 21, a dense passage which I'm not going to explore here, but it's the foundation for Romans 6, 7, and 8. Those chapters mean what they mean in the light of the kingdom theology of Romans 5. The reign of the Messiah and of God through him and with him the reign of his people already are here present realities with future consequences. That's how the whole of Romans 5 to 8 works. And this points to the letter's theological climax in chapter 15. For Paul, Jesus is already enthroned as the world's true Lord, fulfilling the prophetic kingdom vision. And this is the ground for the still future hope. The belief in a now and not yet inaugurated kingdom through the exaltation of the human being, Jesus, Israel's Messiah, was not then a piece of clever apologetic invented in the late first century, let alone the mid-20th century. It was part of the earliest apostolic gospel itself. So too with 1 Corinthians 15. The opening summary in that chapter sees the Messiah's death and resurrection, as you know, in accordance with the scriptures. And the scriptures which Paul then uses throughout the rest of the chapter invest Jesus' resurrection with messianic and kingdom-related meaning. This is clear in verses 20 to 28, which expound a clear now and not yet kingdom teaching. The Messiah has been raised. He is already reigning. His reign will be complete only when his enemies, death included, are conquered. Paul distinguishes the present messianic reign from the clearly future time when God will be all in all. In this passage, with Genesis 1 to 3 resonating throughout, the Messiah's present reign fulfills two vital interlocking psalms, 110 and 8, speaking of the coming king as the truly human one. 
Both psalms envisage enemies being subdued by the royal or human figure. Paul makes Psalm 8 verse 7 his main theme. God has put all things under his feet. And he repeats that key phrase over and over. And this verse, verse evokes not only Genesis, but also Daniel 7. In Genesis 1 and 2, the image-bearing humans receive authority. In Daniel 7, as in Psalm 8, we find the one like a son of man now crowned with glory and honour. Paul's paragraph as a whole, focused in the repeated psalm text, concerns the present exaltation of the one like a son of man to a position of world dominion. Even without a reference to Daniel, we are here in synoptic territory. But in fact, you've got it on the sheet, 1 Corinthians 15.34 does allude to Daniel 7.27. J. Thomas Hewitt from Edinburgh has recently shown this. If we ask Paul whether Mark 9.1 has been fulfilled, whether the promised kingdom has come with power, and if we ask Paul whether the Son of Man has already been exalted with worldwide authority, Paul's answer is yes. God's powerful kingdom is already in operation, though of course there is still a not yet. New creational eschatology has come to birth within history. It's basically what these lectures are all about. So, the Gospels, the Kingdom, and the Son of Man. Suppose we've heard Paul's answer. What will the Gospel writers themselves say about all this? All four Gospels frame the story of Jesus in terms of the long-awaited return of Yahweh. Matthew and Mark introduce John the Baptist with Isaiah 40. The herald is announcing Yahweh's return. And then Mark shows us Jesus. The idea of John as Elijah preparing for Israel's God to come back is emphasized in Matthew 11, where Jesus himself quotes the relevant texts. Luke does the same thing in chapter 7. And then in chapter 19, Luke indicates that Jesus' final journey to Jerusalem is the actualization of God's return. Hence the dire apocalyptic warnings of the things that will happen because you didn't know the moment when God was visiting you. John has his own ways of saying the same thing, but it is the same thing. The Gospels do not contain apocalyptic. In the first century sense, they are apocalyptic. They are describing how the revelation, the unveiling, the visible coming of God took place. Thus, as far as the Gospel writers were concerned, check out Richard Hayes' recent book on the Gospels, Yahweh had returned to his people. This was long overlooked. German liberal Protestantism couldn't see the synoptists' incarnational Christology. And so the myth was alive for over 100 years that the synoptics give you a human Jesus and John gives you a divine one. It's a radical misunderstanding. And the British writers who appropriated the Continentals wanted often a form of incarnation. Certain styles of Anglicanism in the last century have been very keen on incarnational theology, but they never saw it in terms of the return of Yahweh. Once you get that, it puts everything in a different light. The return of God had taken the form of a human story in which there was now a sense of something that had been done and something that was still to be done. For all four Gospels, the story of Israel's returning God had taken the form of the messianic career and death of Jesus of Nazareth. So far as we can tell, Jesus' contemporaries had had no thought that a coming Messiah, should such a figure turn up, would be the personal embodiment of Israel's God. But the way the evangelists told the story of Jesus was as the story of a potential messianic claimant in whose actions and ultimate fate they discerned in retrospect the presence of Israel's God. Isaiah 40 to 55 had a lot to do with that realization. But the messianic narrative mattered in itself. People often forget that actual would-be messianic movements in the period tended always to have a now and not yet element. If we imprison ourselves in 19th century categories, asking whether a supernatural event has occurred or not, 
through which the natural world has been obliterated, then we know the answer. No, the world is still going on, so the end hasn't happened. But supposing we think of the two most obviously royal movements, Judas Maccabeus roughly 200 years before Jesus, Bar Kokhva roughly 100 years after him. Bar Kokhva was hailed by Akiba as the true king, the son of the star. And like the French revolutionaries, he restarted the calendar. He minted coins with the year one. Then the next year, the year two. In other words, the kingdom of God has already been launched. But if somebody had suggested that there was therefore now no future element, he and his followers would have laughed, perhaps bitterly. They had an urgent and dangerous agenda to defeat the Romans, to rebuild the temple. That's how the old mythological narratives work. You defeat the dark powers and then you build the place where God or the king or both is going to come and rest. And that's what the Maccabees had done. They'd seen off the Syrians. They'd cleansed the temple. And that was enough, even though Judas and his family weren't, in fact, from the royal house, to make them kings for the next hundred years. But it had been a false dawn. Likewise, Herod's similar attempts, they were worse. Now, thought the Bar Kokhva people, we'll get the real thing. And of course, it didn't happen. In the third year of the revolt, 1345, the coins, instead of a number, carried the slogan, freedom of Jerusalem. But the Romans closed in and the inaugurated eschatology came to a swift and sad end. Now, anyone who wants to propose the normal post-Schweitzer thesis about Jesus and his first followers being disappointed should look closely at the aftermath of the Bar Kokhva movement and contrast it with early Christianity. I don't know that any end-of-the-world scholars have actually addressed that. There we have a movement which clearly ended in massive, lasting disappointment. But the scholars who've dealt with this stuff mostly aren't concerned with actual Jewish history and culture. See, Rimaris was right to this extent. Jesus' kingdom announcement was indeed to be understood within the apocalyptic and therefore political aspirations of the time, though the and therefore political bit was ignored by Schweitzer, even though he made Rimaris his hero. But what Rimaris said about Jesus applies exactly to Bar Kokhva. What made Jesus different was his radical redefinition of the kingdom as the launch of new creational rescuing power. And what made the early church different from any who survived the Bar Kokhva debacle has to do with what the early Christians said happened next. The two on the road to Emmaus were, of course, bitterly disappointed, but they didn't stay that way. But if you deny the resurrection of Jesus, as much New Testament scholarship did in the 20th century, what are you left with? Well, after the Bar Kokhva revolt, some Jews began to explore Gnosticism, which is exactly what Bultmann did. Where else could you go? Now, Jesus' parables offer his own redefinition of kingdom of God, though remarkably they are seldom seen this way. One gospel scholar has even suggested that Jesus offered no modification of what the kingdom meant in his world. That's bizarre. In fact, the kingdom parables all start from a normal, supposedly normal kingdom meaning, and then explain that the kingdom is coming, but in a different subversive fashion. The hope of Israel is being fulfilled, but not the way people thought it would be. Now, that could, of course, again be a later Christian interpretation. Oh, well, they wrote it up 50 years later. But beyond a certain point, such arguments begin to eat their own tails. How do we know the evangelists have readjusted the picture if our only evidence for the picture is what they tell us? Better to persist with the main evidence. The messianic theme in all the Gospels reaches its height in Jesus' crucifixion. All four Gospels, fully aware of the paradox, see the crucifixion as Jesus' royal enthronement, hence the titulus, King of the Jews, and the mocking. For Matthew, this is how the Son of Man is humiliated in order then to be glorified. For Mark, it encapsulates Jesus' paradoxical redefinition of power itself. For Luke, the powers of darkness do their worst 
and Jesus defeats them. For John, the ruler of this world, is cast out so that Jesus, through his being lifted up, will draw all people to himself. The evangelists knew perfectly well that they were living in a not-yet time. Of course they did. But as far as they were concerned, the cross, whose meaning was disclosed in the resurrection and the subsequent scriptural reflection, generated the already that they were celebrating. That's why in New Testament of the people of God, when I was talking about the early Christian worldview, I summarized, characterized it by saying the Second Temple Jewish worldview has as its most classic characteristic hope. The early Christian worldview has as its most classic characteristic joy. Schweitzer was right then to criticize attempts to spiritualize the meaning of Jesus' message, turning the eschatological or apocalyptic meaning into piety or morality or social conformism. But what Schweitzer never realized, despite his admiration for Reimarus, was that Jesus was not depoliticizing the kingdom. He was redefining power and politics themselves. Within this, all four Gospels indicate, though in different, though converging ways, that Jesus was constantly warning that the temple in Jerusalem was under divine judgment. I'll come back to that in a minute. So, the central saying, Mark 9.1, Luke shortens Mark 9.1 to, some standing here will not taste death until they see God's kingdom end. Matthew, echoing Daniel 7, elongates it, some standing here will not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. How did Matthew at least understand that vital clause? Did he think it was to be taken literally as a prediction of Jesus flying about in midair on a cloud? Emphatically not. This denial will be met with howls of protest. You're much too polite to do that out loud, but I can feel them. Um, but this should not inhibit exegesis. Our exegesis of Matthew Matthew's exegesis of Daniel. Matthew is clear. He frames his entire passion narrative from chapter 26, verse 2, with the prediction that the Son of Man is going to be crucified. And then when it's all over, in chapter 28, he has the risen Jesus declare that Daniel 7 has now been fulfilled. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So you must go and make nations, the nations into disciples. Very like Romans 1, 3 and 4 with the unmistakable echo of Daniel 7, verse 14. As far as Matthew's concerned, the Son of Man has now been exalted into his kingdom. Of course, the eschatology is a long way from being finally realized, but it has been well and truly inaugurated. This is confirmed by Matthew's and Luke's accounts of Jesus' hearing before the high priest. Jesus has been accused of saying, He's going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. And the high priest puts him on oath, are you the Messiah, God's son? Jesus' reply brings together Psalm 110, Daniel 7. You said the words, replied Jesus, but let me tell you this. From now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Key phrase here is from now on, ap arti in Matthew. Caiaphas won't have to wait long. Jesus will be vindicated. He will be enthroned as the true priest king of Psalm 110. He will be exalted as the son of man of Daniel 7 and indeed of Psalm 8, since Matthew has woven that too into his narrative, though I haven't got time to explain that here. Luke agrees. The main difference is that he has apotunion from the now instead of Matthew's aparti from around now, as it were. But the sense is the same. Matthew and Luke both speak, in other words, of a new and lasting state of affairs, not an isolated event, not even an isolated event launching a new state of affairs. And so too in Peter's Pentecost sermon in Acts, there's actually lots of Acts that comes in here. For Peter, Psalm 110 is already true of Jesus, though, as in the psalm itself, there is still an until, until the enemies are under his feet, now and not yet. This cannot be a Lucan invention. It corresponds exactly to Paul and Matthew, and indeed to the psalm itself. 
What about Mark himself? Did Mark think that Jesus had been predicting an imminent cosmic catastrophe? The main answer comes in Mark 13, but this is prefaced by the discussion of Psalm 110 in Mark 12, where Jesus is seen as already fulfilling the psalm. So when we meet the psalm in Mark 14, we might expect it to refer to the enthronement which is about to take place, and that is what we find in chapter 13. The recent upsurge of interest in temple theology, which I'm going to discuss next time, has strengthened my view, first, that this discourse is primarily about the fall of Jerusalem, and second, that since the temple was the heaven and earth place, the microcosmos, its imminent destruction was bound to mean more than the mere failure of national hope. It was, from the Jewish point of view, the collapse of the space-time order itself, not in the sense that space and time and matter would suddenly cease to exist, but that the created order of heaven and earth had lost the linchpin which held it together. Interestingly, there's lots of cross-cultural stuff about temples and sacred poles and so on, which function in exactly that way in different cultures. As with Jeremiah then, this was the event that Jesus predicted would happen within a generation. With hindsight, we ourselves naturally see Jesus' death, resurrection, exaltation, the fall of the temple, the still future consummation of all things as separate events in a way which couldn't be seen like that when Pilate was governor and Caiaphas was high priest. But Mark has indicated that there's a nexus between Jesus and the temple, more specifically between Jesus' kingdom claim and the warnings against the temple. Mark is just as clear as John, though in different ways. The implicit claim by Jesus leaves no room for the temple. The shrine has done its forward-pointing work. Now it is a haunt for brigands, ripe for destruction. Now this meaning should have been obvious from the beginning of Mark 13, were it not for verses 24 six, to 5, 6 and 7 in the middle. The sun will be as dark as night, the moon won't give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, the powers of heaven will shake, then they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with great power and glory, and he'll dispatch his, dispatch his messengers, etc. This indeed is the event within a generation, verse 30, though the precise hour is known to none but the Father alone. Everything we have seen so far from Paul, Matthew, and Luke insists that we should read this language in terms of the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus and the fall of the heaven and earth place, in other words, the temple. The crucial arguments come from the allusions to Isaiah 13 and 34 and Daniel 7, no space for details here, as I stressed earlier, the language and imagery had been in regular use for a long time to refer to what we might call socio-political events and to invest them with what we might call their cosmic significance. In particular, whatever Daniel 7 may have meant in earlier literary settings, commentators argue about that, it is absurd to think that a first century reader would take the sea monsters literally, or that anyone interpreting Daniel 7, 13 and 14 would have ignored the interpretations given in that chapter itself in verses 15 to 27. Mark is not then here reflecting a post-70 perspective. He is presenting his construct of how it all appeared from within Jesus' public career. Mark's Jesus believes he will die and be raised as the climax of his kingdom-bringing vocation, and that these events will be the reality towards which Daniel and the Psalms with their vivid imagery had been pointing. And he believes too that he is called to pronounce the temple's doom, so that when the temple is destroyed, he will be vindicated. The two go together. The gospel writers agree with Paul. Jesus' death and resurrection constitute his powerful, scriptural fulfilling inauguration as king. The world had changed. Israel had changed. History itself, since one, had changed. The early fathers agreed. Read through the second century. There is no problem of delay. They're not bothered. 
Here, then, is the irony of the modern invocations of apocalyptic. As soon as you say that, oh, apocalyptic now makes sense to us because we, too, live in turbulent times, then shows you haven't grasped what was going on. Jesus was not teaching general truths. As the reformers rightly insisted, he was doing something f-hapax once and for all. Apocalyptic was not a general principle about the way stuff happens in the world. It was biblical language to convey the meaning of the one-off event, meaning which came through its unique and disruptive role within the narrative of creation and covenant. I've italicized some of the words in that sentence, unique, disruptive, and within. You need them all. Let the reader understand. Alternatively, if you say that apocalyptic means vertical revelation from above with no horizontal connection, you rule out the very interpretative frameworks which Jesus, Paul, and the evangelists evoke. Of course, the Western world has known huge turbulence in recent centuries. If that calls for a more revolutionary form of Christian discipleship, fine. But let's not imagine that that's what Jesus was talking about, a general truth to be reapplied. The real apocalyptic, Jesus believed that in his death and resurrection, he would complete the work of inaugurating God's kingdom. His first followers, including the writers of epistles and gospels, believed that he had done so. And this belief, I shall propose in the next lectures, gives us a new base for considering the larger questions of God and the world. So to conclude... I've argued that the modern dogma of delay is seriously flawed. Jesus and his first followers did not expect the world to end either during his public career or shortly thereafter. The early Christians knew Jesus might return at any time, but there was no crisis of confidence or grinding of theological gears when, after a generation, Jerusalem was destroyed, the apostles died out, and Jesus had not reappeared. You get those flickers, as I said, 2 Peter 3, John 21 but they are kind of slightly puzzled moments. They're not major theological crises. The modern mistake emerged from modern disappointments with the modern idea of progress. Some Anglo-Saxon scholarship welcomed the idea of delay as an indication that early Christian theology was culturally relative and we could now radically adjust it. The underlying problem, of course, is that if history reached its climax, with Jesus' death and resurrection, it cannot have done so with the Enlightenment, and vice versa. We have lived, often unawares, within a major clash of eschatologies. New theories have hurried in to cover this up. All this indicates three things, finally. First, a fresh understanding of Jesus as a genuinely first-century Jewish apocalyptic or eschatological prophet, long overdue. Second, such a historical task must take seriously the temple theology in which heaven and earth are not separated by a great gulf, as in Epicureanism, but gloriously and powerfully interlinked. And the Sabbath theology in which the age to come really can become present in advance without requiring the world to end first. That, those will be the theme of the next lecture. Third, exploring Jesus in the light of this worldview ought to open new possibilities for speaking more largely about God and the world, and hence of Jesus himself as the starting point and clue to the questions that concern natural theology. Thus, halfway through this course, we have now staked out the territory, particularly history and eschatology. And next week, God willing, we shall move towards new creation. Thank you.